All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, sometimes when the time goes on and generations pass, every once in a while, something that you're trying to hand off to another generation after it goes on, generation after generation after generation, sometimes it ends up looking different than how it started out. Like sometimes there's something that you have that you're originally holding for yourself and you're trying to hand it on to different generations over time, over enough time, sometimes it ends up looking a little bit different or sometimes dramatically different than what was originally intended. For example, just by way of two illustrations, think about a photocopier for just a moment. You know that like when you're in your office and you print something off on that nice inkjet printer, it's all crisp, there's good contrast, the lines are all very straight, and then you go to the photocopying machine and you make a copy of that original uh, a sheet. And in the copy, it usually looks pretty good. It's just sometimes a little bit off a of resolution. Sometimes it's not quite as crisp as the first. But then if you take a copy and then you make a copy of the copy, what you'll see is if you continue to do that, the next generation of copy, using that copy for the next copy, using a new copy, right? Just hold on. If you do that enough times, what happens is you'll see, you'll look at what has become and the resolution is off. Like it's just not as sharp. It's not as crisp. There's different amount of contrast. The color is off a little bit than what you originally started from. And you've kind of probably seen that and experienced that in your life. How many of you, has anyone ever been to the Sistine Chapel in Rome? Anyone ever been to the Sistine Chapel? Anyone? A few of you? Well, the Sistine Chapel, on the ceiling, it's the paintings by the famous artist Michelangelo, right? Brilliant painter. And if you went before 1979, what you would recognize as you looked at Michelangelo's piece of work up there is it looked like in terms of color that it was largely olive colors, a little bit darker, kind of dim in tone. That's what you would see when you looked at the ceiling. But in 1979, Pope John Paul II began a restoration project on the Sistine Chapel to clean Michelangelo's paintings. Like he had a, a restoration of the paintings, and it took over 20 years to accomplish. But what they discovered is that the colors that you would see before 1979 that were kind of darker in tone, a little bit olive and drab. In fact, some psychologist wondered, you know, in terms of Michelangelo's use of colors, if he was d- depressed or, you know, what was going on. And what happened is after the restoration, what they saw is Michelangelo didn't use olives and dark colors and dim neutral colors at all. He used very bright colors, blues and reds and yellows and greens. It was dynamic. It was gorgeous. It was just, whoo, look at all the vibrancy that's going on in Michelangelo's paintings. But what had happened is over the centuries, all the little dust and dirt that gets kind of stirred up from tourists and you got, you know, candles in uh, the Sistine Chapel, that eventually all that stuff found its way to the ceiling and it began to be covered with dirt and soot and all sorts you know, and dust and those sorts of things. So what you would be looking at is what the original artist ever intended. And it was only after the restoration could you see the brilliance of colors. Sometimes I think that's what it's like when it comes to Christianity. I think that God originally intended for something that was bright and colorful and dynamic. And this is the kind of life he intended in regards to Christianity and regards to church. But as that gets passed on, generation after generation after generation after generation, 2,000 years later, sometimes it's hard for us to see reflected in what we are currently living in to be anything like what it was 2,000 years ago. And every once in a while, we need that restoration project to take place in our own thoughts, in our own lives, to wipe away away the dirt and the filth and the soot that might have collected to see what did God intend from the very beginning. And I think this is especially the case when it comes to what it means to be church. The very basic purpose of what it means to be church that I think now what we might look at and what most people think is 
Please tell me that the sum total of what it means to be a Christian is not what happens for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. I mean, please tell me that God's intent and design for the church isn't about just sitting in a padded seat for an hour and 15 minutes and in that time singing anywhere from four to six songs, taking communion and listening to a brilliant sermon for 30 minutes. Amen? Maybe a little longer. Who knows? Tell me that church isn't about a once a week activity that takes place between the times of 11:30 and 12:45. But I'm telling you, I think unfortunately, for a multitude of reasons, the vast majority of Christians think of church as what happens inside the four walls of a building for about an hour and then 15 minutes. And then you leave and you get to check it off of your to-do list on God's list for you and we'll see you next week. But when you read the Bible, and especially the book of Acts, about what it meant and what it looked like to be church, you can't find that perspective at all. That in Acts, it's alive, and it's dynamic, and it's powerful, and it's growing, and there's miracles, and there's great faith, and there's great expectancy, and it's almost as if generations of dust and dirt and grime have covered over what God originally intended, and we've just lost God's intent for vibrancy and color that's spectacular the way it was meant to be. Now, if I might defend you for just a moment, much of this I don't think is your fault, right? Isn't that good to hear? You always like to hear it's not my fault, right? I don't think much of this is your fault. There really are reasons. But let me just ask you, when I say the word church, let's do a word association. When I say church, what's the first picture that comes to your mind? Okay, right? I think that's right. I think that's the correct answer. So what you see here is it might be depending on your background or what kind of church you're in. It could be churches like this that look fairly modern. It could be all sorts of churches, big churches like this, right, large churches. It could be old churches. But my guess, if I were to ask the majority of people, what's the very first picture or image that comes to mind when we say church, my guess is you're thinking about a building. That when we say the word church, what we most commonly associate that with is a building. And let me tell you, I think your grandma's to blame as well. Can I explain why? Don't tell your grandma, but here's what. Anyone you ever grow up and you did this little thing here where, right, here's the church and here's the steeple. Open the doors and there's the people. Your grandma is theologically wrong, right? She's a heretic. Don't tell her I told you that. Don't tell my grandma, but she's a heretic. That, that was a lie. See, it's not that there's a church, and then if you open up, there's the people. The New Testament has an entirely different understanding of what it means to be church. But I'm telling you, I think in 2011, as it's been handed down generation after generation, church is overwhelmingly associated with the idea of a building and what happens within the four walls of that building on a Sunday for about an hour and 15 minutes. And the reason why that is biblically so ridiculous that we would ever define church as what happens in the four walls is because the New Testament has no concept or idea of a church building like we're in this morning. None. None. And in fact, if you just were to take a look through the scriptures, you know this. In the city of Jerusalem, which was a major city, we do know at least in Jerusalem, at least until A.D. 70, because at A.D. 70 the temple was destroyed, but in Jerusalem we know that early church did meet day by day in the courts of the temple, and they also met in homes. And so you have this reference in Acts chapter 2. It talks about all the things that the church did together in their life together, and it says in Acts 2 verse 46, every day... How would you like that to meet every day, right? Not just even an hour and 15 minutes once a week. It's every day. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
And they broke bread, which means they ate together in their homes, hallelujah, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. But outside of the city of Jerusalem, you don't have a single reference to Christians meeting in a special building that they called church. Not one. Not one time in the rest of Scripture do they ever view four walls and a building that they're meeting in as church. For the, fir- for the first 300 years of Christianity, what you read about is, is they always met in the homes. And so grandma's little, here's the church and steeple, they wouldn't get that at all. It would be, they'd think your grandma was drinking too much gin. And, and now listen, can I, I want to give you a little bit of history, but don't, I know not everybody loves history, but don't get lost in this. I want you to hear where we got to where we got, I want you to see, I think this is how we got from here to here. So let me give you just a little bit of history if I could. The first 300 years of the church's life, they viewed themselves as a persecuted minority. And they were. When they looked around the world, it was the vast majority of people had not confessed Jesus as Lord. They were, in fact, statistically, numerically, they were a minority and they were a persecuted minority. Nobody knew what to do with the Christians. They were kind of strange. They didn't believe the same things as everybody else. They didn't worship the gods that everybody else did. They were a persecuted minority. So for the first 300 years, depending on who the emperor was, it was quite possible that they were either isolated, sometimes they were injured and suffered persecution, and sometimes they were put to death. But I'm telling you, the first 300 years of the church's life was the most dynamic, and it was the most powerful. I mean, I know we're not all for let's be persecuted. I'm not for that. Like, hey, let's bring that back on. That sounds like great. No, no. But what I'm telling you is when they viewed themselves as a minority and in that state relied heavily on God and depended on God and his power and had great faith, I mean, they were convicted that the Lord Jesus really was raised from the dead and was present with them in reality by the Holy Spirit. And they were so driven by that conviction that they told everybody, and it didn't matter how they responded or what kind of trouble they'd get into, they had great faith and great boldness and great courage, and you see story after story of power and miracles and signs and wonders, and the church grew rapidly the first 300 years. And I'm telling you, that was, in fact, the glory days of the church. But then, when you also have at this time, they saw themselves as, as the Bible says, Hebrews 11:13, as strangers and exiles. They knew they lived on the earth. They lived in their communities, but they recognized they belonged to God, and because of that, they fit into more of a stranger in exile status. Or First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you're aliens and you're exiles, even though we're still submitting ourselves to every human institution. Paul will say in Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And so they were living the future kingdom life of worship and service that Jesus had taught them now here in this world, as they fully expected the kingdom of God to come with greater power. Yet in the 4th century, a significant change took place. So fast forward, first 300 years, in the 4th century, there's significant changes that happened. One is this. In 311 AD, there was an emperor named Constantine who came to power. He was the new Roman emperor. That's what he looked like right there, I guess. So a handsome man, I guess, Emperor Constantine. Now, Emperor Constantine's mother was a Christian, And later in life, Emperor Constantine won a great battle, and he gave the glory to Jesus. He gave Jesus the credit for it, and then later converted himself to Christianity. Now imagine this, a church that's a minority and persecuted for 300 years, and then out of nowhere, Emperor Constantine comes around, and now all of a sudden, the emperor of Rome declared himself to be a Christian. Now on the one hand, that's good news, because we're not going to get thrown to the lines anymore, right? Like there's no more... Gladiator. I mean, that's good news in terms of suffering and persecution. 
But in the end, what happens is Christianity quickly became culturally acceptable. And Constantine himself demanded that his entire army be baptized in the name of Jesus, right? Now, it's a forced sort of thing. You fast forward just 100 more years, in 412 AD, Emperor Theodosius I came to power. This is Emperor Theodosius, not nearly a good-looking man, is he? No, he's the ugly Roman emperor. He's dead, so I feel okay saying that right now. He actually declared that unless you were a Christian, it was a crime against the state of Rome. So you had to be a Christian to be legal. You had to be a Christian to be a Roman citizen. Now, could you imagine the massive shift that takes place in a culture and a society when it goes from being a minority to all of a sudden everybody has to be a Christian? Because you know if everybody has to be a Christian, then in the end, who really is a Christian? Because you've got to so lower that standard, so lower that bar, so all the half-committed masses could get in and be and call themselves a Christian, and everything changes as scores of half-committed people flood into the church because now it is mandated. When the church becomes popular, several things happen. And and listen to me, this is why I'm all for Christians being a minority. Like, that's why I'm not into this, let's grabbing more power politically in the United States and making the United States. I mean, the nation state of America cannot declare Jesus is Lord, and we always are at our best when we are a minority. And so what happens is major shifts take place when Christianity all of a sudden becomes the socially accepted, culturally accepted, mandated of state religions. So things like this, membership no longer requires much commitment. It just can't. Because you've got so many people that now have to be Christians. And so following after Jesus gets dumbed down to things like, well, if you attend Mass and if you take of the sacraments, then you could be a good Christian. Whereas Jesus is like, oh, no, you need to die to yourself and carry my cross. And then, right, I mean, there's a high bar, there's a high standard that affects every aspect of life. And so what happens is very quickly a two-level tier forms in terms of the church. Now, in terms of like, have you ever monasteries, convents, you ever heard of those where you got monks and you got nuns? I'm not bashing on that. That's fine. But you don't see any of that in the New Testament. There is no New Testament concept of monasteries or convents. Do you know why that happened historically? Because you had people who still wanted to be committed to Jesus, and you, had ha- you have these scores of people who are now in the church. And so in order to show their true commitment, they began to form monasteries and, co- and convents to prove they were truly devoted to Jesus. They're trying to keep that high standard, that high bar. And so that's when that began to develop. You know what else happened? Infant baptism begins to take place after the year 300. Right? And you can see why this is true. Now, the first 300 years, it's always adult believers' baptisms. It is a conscious act of faith declaring Jesus as Lord. But after 300, if you can't be a Roman citizen without being a Christian, what happens is if you're a good Roman family and you give birth to a child, you want that child to have all the rights and protections of Roman citizenry. And the way that that took place is through the sign and sacrament of baptism. And so all of a sudden, after the year 300, you've got infant baptism taking place. Another thing that happened that I think is completely tragic is the church and the state state became wed to one another, and it was viewed as one and the same thing. So if you were to fight for Rome, it meant you were fighting for Jesus. And don't we know in our history books this has happened over and over again? Well, if you fight for the king of France, then you're on God's side against the king of... I mean, that's the way it works. That any time there's great danger whenever the church and the state are wedded together, because now the church can no longer be that prophetic voice to the state. That's another sermon altogether. I'll give it to you some other time. But you know what else happened? Because of the church's allegiance to the state, you know what the state did? It gifted the church things that, when Constantine was emperor, one of the things he did is he gifted to the church Roman buildings that were used for government purposes. He gifted to them, and they were called basilicas. 
And so all of a sudden, you've got this persecuted minority church who all of a sudden becomes socially and culturally acceptable and no longer are meeting in homes, but now they've been given beautiful, ornate buildings, four walls to meet in, called basilicas. And what happens is the church over time begin to identify themselves with a building and what happens within the four walls of the building. It did, no one intended it. Nobody meant it to happen, but after generation after generation, when you begin to think of church, what you thought of was that beautiful, ornate building and what happened in those four walls. And from there to today, I'm telling you, even in 2011, there are still vestiges of that Constantinian shift where when we think about church, we don't think about people. What we think about is a building, and we think about four walls and what we do for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday, and none of that is biblical. There were real practical changes and shifts that took place in focus and in definition because of this historical shift. And I'm going I'm to move on from history in just a moment. But let me give you some practical things that changed. Number one is the size of the assemblies, right? They just changed. It moved from being small to being larger groups. And there's dynamic changes when that takes place. See, before in the first 300 years, I've been in your home. I know what your kitchen looks like. I know that your bathroom is right down the hallway, right? You've right? you got to jiggle the handle. You figure those things out because, Right? But if you're in a building that can fit thousands and thousands of people, then you could be a virtual stranger to one another week after week after week, and your life could be falling apart and everything on fire, and nobody knows because there's a great deal of anonymity. But you don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. You don't see us connected so loosely together in that way. Number two, the place of meeting changed from the house to cathedrals, right? And there's lots of things with that. Number three, buildings changed from being functional spaces. Like, I'm not opposed to buildings, right? I'm not like, hey, let's sell this place and go to our homes, and you can't fit, you all can't fit in my house, and I, we can't fit in your, I mean, so I'm all right with buildings, but what it is, it ought to be, they're just functional spaces that allowed us to do what we are gathered together to do in the name of Jesus. But what they became is sacred spaces. So if you've ever been to a church where they got a lot of rules for the sanctuary, don't bring that cup of coffee in here. Don't wear that kind of clothes. Don't have, right, you know what I'm saying? Where does that come from? That comes from the shift of what we viewed as church all of a sudden as this sacred building. And so everything shifts and changes from functional to sacred. Worship changes from participation to observation. And this is huge. When you read the New Testament, everybody came with something. Like when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Spirit of God has given everybody something to be offered for the benefit and the building up of the body of Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 says. That's what the spiritual gifts are for, for the, or 12-7, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so in that, if you got the gift of encouragement, you show up and encourage somebody. If you got the gift of faith, you show up and exercise your gift of faith. If you got a gift of healing, you pray for somebody who is sick, and we all just do it one another. I mean, it's not like on the stage, but we work that way. So what happens, though, is active participation to now, it's large observation, right? Which direction are you all facing? Me. Because you're listening, right? Sometimes we call this an auditorium. I mean, all those concepts means you're here to listen to what it is that I provide this week in my sermon preparation, and, and it's largely observation, and we kind of the few, you know, the worship team. No, that's never the picture of the New Testament. The New Testament is we are all actively involved in participating and not observing. And that's why you could show up, and when you get in your car, it's not what God used you in this moment to do for somebody else. You get in the car and go, well, what did you think of that sermon? It was outstanding, right? I and mean, that's what you say. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Well, what do you think about the worship team? I don't know. I like the first two songs, but that third song, I'm like, what are you doing? We're just kind of, it's that objectifying. We're observation, and then we're giving our criticism, what we liked, didn't like, and how'd that go, and how, and communion changed. And boy, I don't know how we got off on this. It went from a communal meal, right? Like a meal. We've got to bring back New Testament Christianity. I mean, a good pot roast going down is all right. It'll be fantastic is what I'm thinking. 
some ribeye steaks. That's what we do when we gather together. And now you got a little chiclet in that little cup of grape juice. That can't tide anybody over for 15 minutes. That's not what you find in the New Testament. Fellowship change. That's what I was talking about earlier, right? It went from being in-depth to we're living life together. And you know what I'm struggling with in regards to raising my kids. And because you know, you're able to support me and pray for me in it. And I know what's going on in your life. And you're looking for a job. And so I've got my eyes and ears open for that opportunity for you and praying for you. But it moved to being less depth. Now it's, hi, good to see you. See you next week. And we could do that for years together. Leadership change. Did you know that? It went from being functional, meaning the Spirit of God gave different gifts. And out of those gifts manifest leadership. This is what we need at the time. Well, good thing God's given that right now. And look, he has it or she has it, and they begin to lead and serve to being very official, right? It's, a very, it's an office now. There's very heavy on titles. And even clothes changed, didn't it? So if you were a leader in the church, you didn't wear a gray sweater. You got to have, like, robes and vestry, and you got to wear a collar that, right? I mean, that's, that's what worked. Ministry changed. Did you know, according to the New Testament, every single one of you is a minister of Jesus Christ? I mean, it just doesn't have any concept whatsoever of those paid few and everybody else is there to receive what it is they have to offer. The Peter talks about this, it's the priesthood of all believers. What that means is you are just as qualified to pray to God as I am. What that means is if somebody around you is sick, you are just as qualified to pray for their healing as I am. What that means is you're, I mean, you understand what I'm saying? That every, God has given everybody something and to be used for his glory. So that even the, then the use of the gifts change as well. They used to be for one another to the gifted few who are using on a platform. That's so foreign to any biblical concept or understanding. Membership changed. We're all in this together, and we're all producers together in the kingdom of God. To consumers, well, what do you have for my kids here? I mean, I got a 12-year-old, I got a 6-year-old, what do you have for them? And this is my life station. And so we come with that consumer mentality. You can't find the new... T- nobody showed up to the church in Jerusalem and thought, do you have a good youth ministry? I mean, it was, Jesus was alive. And see, this is what worked. Growth changed. It went from multiple... I'll tell you, the first 300 years, it was multiplying. It wasn't like, well, how many this week? And you, we added a few. I mean, it was like, boom, explosion, multiplication. It moved to addition. And even witnessing changed. It used to go from relationships because you were in your community and you were in your associations and connections and you were meeting together and you were connected. And then that somehow moved to salesmanship. And anyone ever experienced churchy salesmanship? It is obnoxious. If somebody that you don't know comes to your door and you answer the door and they want to talk to you about your spiritual life and do you know Jesus, it's like you are a stranger. You are the last person I want to talk to about my spiritual life. And I'm not saying God can't use those things, but something has shifted over the generations that I'm telling you, I think what we're experiencing is not what God intended from the very beginning. And the last thing I'd offer is mission changed. Missions changed from being to sending. And what I mean by that is, Everyone thought of themselves as we are all on mission. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean we're moving to Kenya. It means where I live or where I work, I am who God has called me to be, and I am on mission. To now, church is like, we get a family together, and we'll send you to Uganda, and we get another family, we'll send you to Asia. And those are who we're sending to do mission work, and the rest of us just go on live our life like there's nothing else but Sunday for an hour and 15 minutes. No, I mean, there's a huge shift that took place in that. And in the end, the New Testament picture of church is not about buildings, The New Testament picture of the church is always about people. And so what I think we might need is a, I don't know if it's going to take 20 years, but we need some sort of restoration project that allows us to wipe off the dust and the dirt and the soot and whatever it is that's kind of put itself on our own thinking and our understanding so that in the end we might be able to go back and see, I think God never intended for us to look at buildings and four walls as the sum total of Christianity. 
And that when we think of church, no longer the, most, the first and predominant image is no longer about buildings, but about people. That when I say, what's your first image of church, you think about the person next to you. And you think about yourself. Because you are the church. The word in Greek is ekklesia. It literally means those who've been called out, the called. It's the assembly of the called. And it's not even original Christianity. It predates even that. But Christians used it because it recognized that God has a mission. God is doing something on the earth. And in that mission, he has, for whatever reason, decided to choose a people to participate with him to bring about the accomplishment of that mission. And you are that people, and those people in the New Testament are called church. The church's primary identity has to be found in a people on God's mission to see his kingdom advance. What that means is the church doesn't have a mission. God has a mission, and it happens to have a church. Now, I know it's a little subtle distinction, but you understand that it's not like God's asking, hey, would you come up with a mission? God's like, no, I have a mission, and that's why you're here, right? I, I am on mission. Did you know that God is on mission at Monroe School? He's crazy in love with those kids, loves them. And what he'd like is for that church that's just a block and a half away to help him in that mission to show a real flesh and blood, tangible effect on those kids. He loves them. Did you know that God's in love with all the students at Riley High School? Loves them. And right now there's a girl there who's cutting herself because she's in so much pain in her life, she doesn't know what to do with that pain. And that's the only coping mechanism that she can think of. But God is on mission in her life, and he wants for her to be connected to somebody, maybe at a church, the people, a church that's just so far away, to bless her and tell, speak truth into her life, and, and right to speak life right into her heart that it begins to release all of that. But that's what God's on mission at Miami Hills. God's on mission at Southmore Housing Co-op. Did you know that God is on mission on Don Moyer, Woodside, Oakside, Ekman, Irvington, Fairview, Victoria, Altgeld, Ewing, Donald Fox? I mean, I'll be all the way down, right? He's crazy in love with them. And what he wants is a church, not that's huddled together in the four walls of a building at 718 East Moyer, but a church that recognizes it is who we are and thus it has sent us out to be with those that he's crazy in love with. Jesus' instructions has never been about an hour and 15 minutes. That the real work of what it means to be a Christian is what happens as soon as we leave this place. That church is about the called out people of God showing up to work on a Monday and because of the authority they have in Jesus, scaring the hell out of hell itself, right? Jesus' instructions to us have never been, hey, would you put together the best hour and 15-minute show that you're capable of and send out postcards to everybody and hope that they show up and are impressed by what it is that you're doing on stage and they'll think, I should come back next week. That has never... Now, I'm not opposed to all that, right? You understand? I mean... I like people coming. That's all right. But that's not the full, that cannot be the sum total of Christianity. And that cannot be the sum total of what God wants for us as church. The mission of God is not accomplished, and the kingdom of God is not advanced if the sum total of that mission is what happens for an hour and 15 minutes in people's week. No, the real challenge of being church is what we do with the other 166.75 hours in the week. Jesus' words are not, hey, why don't you come over here? Jesus' words have always been, go. It's the verb he chooses, not won't you come, but rather go. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. I know this is the Great Commission. Many of you have heard this over and over again. This is what Jesus says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, just listen to that, right? If there is any authority that can be given in heaven and on earth, it belongs to Jesus. There is nobody who has more authority than Jesus. Nobody. There is no boss in your life, no ex-husband in your life. There is no neighbor. There is no demon. There's no spiritual power. There's no, nothing has more authority. Gee, I have all of it. If there is authority to have, I own it all, heaven and on earth. 
And because of that, he's saying to us, therefore, go. Not, hey, hang out in the four walls, but go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he even ends it with this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I don't know if that's a promise or a threat, but Jesus says, I'm going to be with you in this to the very end. That what we begin to see when we think of church is we are sent. It is the go. Out of 718 East Dummer Avenue to do the real work of what it means to be church. What that means is when you show up to work tomorrow, you will show up as church. That's what it means. And that means something. If you show up as church, then you will treat your boss in a particular way because you are church. You're the called out ones, right, that God has on his mission. It means that when all the other employees in the break room are upset with another coworker and they're bashing him and talking about it, because that happens sometimes at work, unless you don't, and I don't know if you know that, but sometimes that happens, you'll be a place of light, and you won't participate in that. In fact, you'll give an alternative conversation to bring light to that situation. It means if you're going to school tomorrow morning, you will go as church. And so that kid that's isolated and bullied, and I don't care for whatever reason it is, you'll be the light of Jesus, and you'll speak life, and you'll begin to find connection and relationship because you went to school as church. It means you'll treat your teachers in a different way. It'll mean you'll, mean you'll treat different, your students in a different way because you go as church. And it also means this. When we're done here in just a little bit, I promise I'm almost done. You might be getting in the car and going to a restaurant, and when you do, I hope you have a great meal. But as you eat, remember, you are there in church. That means you're going to have to treat your waiter and waitress in a particular way because you're church. You're a people on God's mission. It means you're going to have to tip in a way that reflects you're a people on God's mission, right? It might cost you more money, but it's going to be all right. God will take care of you in it because you are on mission. Church is who we are, and it's intended to be a full life commitment. And we need to quit checking the Sunday morning thing off of our to-do list and recognize God never intended for it to be an hour and 15 minutes. He is always intended to be something greater, something brighter more dynamic. I love the language Paul uses. Here's, I'll, I'll close with this. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the metaphor of being an ambassador. But listen to what he says. I'll, I'll begin in verse 16. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. This is what it means. When you give your life to Jesus, you get new glasses that have filters in which you see everything differently, right? That irritating neighbor with that dog, remember that one? You now have to see them differently. Your ex-husband, before Jesus, you thought about him like this, but now in Jesus, you've got new glasses and new lenses to see him differently. Everyone we see is from a new point of view. And it even says, though we once even regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And listen to this. And he gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. Not just a few paid professionals. We all have, it is God is trying to reconcile the world back to himself. And he's entrusted you to be a minister in that. You have a ministry of reconciliation. And so he goes on and he says, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, this is the, language, the metaphor I love. You know what an ambassador does, right? Like the United States sends ambassadors to four nations, and in those nations they represent the interest of the United States of America, right? 
So when we send an ambassador out to Paris, France, what they do is they represent the government of the United States of America. They represent the president of the United States. They enter into diplomatic conversations. And where they live in Paris, the American ambassador in Paris, in the consulate they live in, it is under the laws and constitutions of the United States of America. Did you know that? Even though they're in another foreign land, in the compound, in the consulate, they live under the laws and constitutions of the United States of America. And in that, they are continually serving as a representative of the United States of America. That's what Paul says, you are that for Jesus. I don't care where you find yourself, what foreign land you find yourself in, what foreign territory you find yourself in. If you work in Elkhart, then you should go to Elkhart as an ambassador of Jesus. And what does that mean? That you represent the government of Jesus at your job in Elkhart. If your house is in Mishawaka and on your street in Mishawaka, you should represent yourself as an ambassador of Jesus there on that street in Mishawaka. And what does that mean? You're representing the government of Jesus, how Jesus wants things to be. This is how I define the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is his reign and rule. What God wants to happen, happens. And you become representatives of that. You become ambassadors of that. And you have real kingdom authority. And you know why? Because you're the church. You're the body of Christ. And the Spirit of God lives in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives in you. And this matters then when we get into the office tomorrow. And imagine what it would mean for the world and even just the south side of South Bend and the 42,500 people who live all around us if the church will be the church. And stop thinking in regards to what happens for an hour and 15 minutes, but for the rest of the week as well. A people called out and committed to God's mission. And so next week, we're gonna t- I want to tell stories about what this will look like because I'm telling you, we've got people here who, in, who are in law enforcement by way of profession, and I can't tell you how excited I am about the possibilities of being able to be on God's mission in that profession. I mean, we'll tell stories about it next week. You know how many teachers we have here and administrators in schools we have in this place? I mean, this church, it's amazing. And the amazing possibilities and opportunities I think exist because, I mean, I just want to daydream together. I want to imagine together. I want to vision together what it might look like for you. Exactly where, if you work at Martin's Supermarket as a cashier, you are on God's mission. I'm telling you, God has a big plan and purpose for you. If you are, it doesn't matter where, I mean, God, and we want to dream big about what that will look like. Because in the end, it's about real people living out real faith outside of these four walls and making God's reign and rule his kingdom tangible perceptible to everybody else, and touchable and real. That's where we go. For now, let's remind ourselves that definitions are important, and that you are the church of Jesus Christ. Not, not this building, but you. We've been called out to be sent, to be worthy ambassadors. So let's pray together ask God to bless us. Now, Father, we come to you and ask that you would bless us to be good ambassadors of your son, Jesus. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe, the God who spoke things into being with your very word, has called us to be able to participate with you. (laughs) We know we're not smart enough for it. We're not good enough for it. We're not spiritual enough. We don't have enough scripture memorized, and none of that matters. What we need is simply your presence through through your spirit, and that's what we're depending on. And so we're asking that as we go out of here, and when we're out of this place, we will represent you well and be on your mission. That even though we've enjoyed these 75 minutes, I pray that we'll understand that it's not nearly as important as what's about to take place in the next 10,005 minutes. And it's those minutes that we look to to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.